Cindy was a little girl. Twyla Paris was um, kind of popular back then. I don't hear much of her anymore, but anyway, I was a big Twyla Paris fan, and we used to listen to her CDs. I used to play them a lot with the kids, and and um, the song, He is uh, Exalted, The King is Exalted, and I Will Praise His Name, and uh, we used to play that one a lot, and I can remember one time, Cindy was probably about two or three years old, and she was standing on the couch, and I had that song playing, and I looked over, and Cindy was singing at the top of her lungs. He is exhausted. The king is exhausted. And I was like, what's she saying? Exhausted, you know, not exalted. And I just, in fact, I can still see her with her long, you know, blonde hair, curly hair. And I can still remember laughing. And when I think about her doing that, I still laugh. And I thought then and still now how funny that is and really how ironic because we are the ones that go around exhausted all of the time because of our failure to seek the king in prayer. We have come to a lesson on prayer, and we have come to six very important verses, and James is going to deal with prayer. And we are going to answer such questions as these. What should we do when we're sick? Should we really call for the elders of the church? And should they really bring anointing oil? What is the prayer of faith? Hi. What is effectual, earnest prayer? And maybe some other questions. In fact, the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight are actually key, some of the key verses in all of the Bible on sickness, healing, and prayer. So you want to listen up and take good notes tonight. Now, before we get into the lesson on prayer, I want to remind you from our first lesson that James is not merely speaking from observation. Remember, in our introductory lesson, we discovered that James was known as a man of prayer. In fact, so much so that he was found on his knees in the temple and uh, praying so much for himself and his people that he had knees like camel knees. So he is talking from a man of experience. Now, last week, We just looked at verse 12, and we saw the sin of making rash oaths or vows that we have no intention of keeping. And so at first, when you look at verse 13, you might say, well, Susan, what connection is there between making rash vows and then prayer? What is the connection? Well, think about it very carefully. This is a strong contrast. You know, the wrong way to use God's name is in what? oaths or vows that you have no intention of keeping. However, the correct way to use God's name is what? In prayer. And so that's why, James, it is connected. Sometimes we just have to think a little bit, put our thinking caps on as to what is coming next. So notice what he says in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven given him confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit and there we are going to stop this evening 
Now, we're going to have three, basically a three-fold outline tonight. First of all, we're going to see the reason that we should pray. Why should we pray? And we'll see this in verses 13 and 14. And secondly, we're going to see the result of prayer. What are the results of prayer? First of all, the reason, then the result, verses 15 to 16. And then lastly, we're going to see the representation of prayer. The representation of prayer, verses 17 through 18. So we have the reason, the result, and the representation. First of all, let's look at the reason for praying. Why should we pray? Well, notice what James says. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone afflicted? Let him pray. Now, let's define what suffering here is or affliction. It means to be in to endure affliction or to suffer trouble. It could refer to physical distress. It could refer to emotional distress. Now, ladies, put yourself in the shoes of the readers. Can you imagine the mental, the emotional, the spiritual distress that they were under? You know, going to work, out in the hot sun, coming back in, and they say, Nah, sorry, not giving you your money. You know, wait a minute, I've got children to feed at home. Sorry, not getting your money. Dragging some of them into court unjustly. Some wives watching their husbands be killed, murdered. It's hard. It doesn't compare to our sufferings. So what does James tell them to do? Does he say, well, you know, this gives you great cause to murmur. Just start griping. Hey, why don't you rent a movie to forget your sorrows? That's what you ought to do. Or maybe you should, you know, go down to the liquor store and buy, you know, a bottle of wine and get drunk. Or, you know, go get some Prozac. Call the doctor and get some antidepressants. No, look what he says. Is any suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. Now, the Greek word here for pray is restricted to sacred use. And, ladies, it always refers to praying to God. And that is what affliction should drive us to do. It should drive us to our knees to pray. Now, I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud, but just in the privacy of your thought life. Think about the last time that you suffered some affliction. You got it in your head? What did you do? Did you pray? Call your best friend? Did you eat a whole pan of brownies? What did you do? Ladies, when we're suffering or afflicted, we should pray. And you know what we should pray for? We should not only pray for deliverance, but if God chooses not to remove the affliction like he did in this situation with these readers, we should pray for strength to endure. In fact, remember in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul comes to Christ three times, and he says three times, Lord, I have this thorn in my flesh. Some people think it was his wife, but I don't think so. I think it was false teachers. But, or it could have been his eye disease. Lord, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. And God said, no, no, no. But guess what, Paul? I'm going to give you the strength to do this, to go through this. Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So much so that Paul says, therefore, I glory in my infirmities. I glory in my afflictions. Why? So the power of Christ will rest upon me. So when we turn to the Lord in prayer, 
during affliction. It may not remove the affliction, but ladies, it will change your perspective on it. It will change your perspective on it. In fact, I can recall times, and I know you can, that I have been in deep sorrow and affliction and distress. And yet when I call out on the Lord's name for relief or for help, it changes my whole perspective on it. Many times God chooses not to give me what I want, but I find great relief in communing with him. It's like Peter says, cast all your care on him for he cares for you. Just throw it down, leave it there, and then get up off of your knees and leave it. Someone said times like these are bittersweet. You know, even Christ prayed that his cup of suffering might not be removed, that it might be removed, but it wasn't. But you know what God did? He gave his son the strength to go to the cross and die for our sins. Now, ladies, James' command here to pray is in stark contrast to making rash vows in verse 12, right? Instead of making a rash vow when you're in trouble, oh, God, if you'll just get me out of here, I promise that I'll be good the rest of my life. And I'm sure the readers were tempted to make a rash vow in the midst of their suffering. But instead of making a rash vow, he says, no, turn to God in prayer. Ladies, we should be in the habit of praying at all times, especially during affliction. In fact, I've wondered, you know, if you just listen to the news, and I was listening to a little bit on the way here, and I got so discouraged I turned it off and listened to Christian music instead because that's more encouraging. But I was thinking, what are the unbelievers doing today with everything going on in our world? How are they handling what is happening so rapidly to our nation? I don't know, you know, a lot of them are taking their own life, committing suicide and blowing up everyone else while they kill themselves. Ladies, we have hope during adversity because we have a God that hears and answers our prayer. And James says to us, let trouble drive you to God and let it drive you to prayer. Well, from the topic of affliction, James now moves to another aspect of our lives, and that's joy. Notice what he says. Is anyone cheerful? or Mary, let him sing psalms. Now, the word cheerful means to be happy, and it describes the well-being of your soul, and actually it describes the strength and the disposition of your mind. Your mind. And I'm glad James says this because it shows me that our lives are not always full of afflictions, even though sometimes it seems that they are. But ladies, did you notice from the meaning of the word that I just gave you that everything doesn't have to be going our way in order for us to be happy or to be merry if it's a disposition of our mind? It's an inner state of our heart, regardless of what is happening. And in that, what we found out in our first lesson, my brethren, counted all joy when what? Anybody remember the rest of the, counted all joy when what? You fall into various trials. Is any merry? Count it all joy when you fall into trials. So what are we to do when we're merry? What does James say? Are we to party? Party on, dudes, you know. Let's celebrate. Let's go out to dinner. Should we forget we're sanctified and we belong to the, to the Lord? Notice what he says. Sing psalms. Sing psalms. 
The word here, sing psalms, usually means to sing to the accompaniment of a harp. In fact, in the New Testament, it is confined to praising God in sacred music. You might say, well, why does James say that? Why does he say when we're merry, we should sing psalms? Well, think about it. Think about the last time that you were just really, really happy. You were saying, well, it's been a long time. You know, sometimes when we're really, really happy and things are going great for us, you know what can it can cause us to do if we're not careful? Leads us to what? Sometimes sinning, sensuality, celebrating in an ungodly way, partying. And James says, if you're merry, sing psalms. Sing psalms. Ladies, no matter what you're going through this evening, whether it's affliction, whether it's something that's happened that's you're you know you're married this evening or you're just happy but you know what doesn't matter what it is our perspective is best when we have god in the center of our thoughts thoughts whether it's suffering or whether it is joy in fact the two conditions here suffering and cheerfulness really describe every emotional experience in our life right I mean, tonight, if I go around the room and say, okay, Alicia, are you going through affliction? Or are you really, you know, happy tonight? Or, Pam, what are you going through tonight? I would probably get a varied, I would get varied answers. Some of you are going through really difficult times. Dixie's going through a really difficult evening. That's why she's not here. I mean, Tony, I bet's having a great time with those three grandkids. But it doesn't really matter. Both of those times in our life can be used by God to strengthen our relationship to him. The old hymn says that we don't sing anymore. I remember singing it growing up in a Baptist minister's home. In every joy that crowns my days, in every pain I bear, my heart will find delight in praise or seek relief in prayer. That's a good hymn. Well, James now moves from general afflictions to a specific affliction, illness. And by now, most of us in this room have lived long enough to either personally experience illness or we know someone who has experienced some kind of illness. In fact, probably most of us in this room have know someone who has passed away because these events affect, affect all of us, don't they? No one is exempt from that. So what do we do when we get sick? Or what do we do when someone we know gets sick? Well, James asks the same question in verse 14. Notice what he says. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Now, the word translated sick means to be feeble or to be diseased. And ladies, James is not talking about a little cold or a runny nose or some sniffles. He's talking about a very serious illness. In fact, the reason we know this is because it's the same Greek word that is used to talk about Lazarus, who he was what, sick unto death and he died right so i mean that's pretty sick it's also the same greek word that we had last year when we studied the epistle to the philippians remember Epaphroditus took that 800 mile journey from uh, philippi to rome to see paul in, in prison and remember his sickness almost caused him to die remember but paul said god had mercy on him and on me also at least i should have sorrow upon sorrow so it's the same greek word and we know Epaphroditus almost died and so James says, is any among you sick? 
I mean, this guy is sick. In fact, we know he's so sick in verse 15. It says the Lord will raise him up. And so we know that he must be bedfast. He is that ill. So what are we to do when we're sick? Well, most of you in this room would say, well, I've, you know, honey, call the doctor or let's go get, let's go down to Walgreens and get some, you know, antibiotics or get some painkillers or something. But how many of you have ever said, honey, would you call the elders of the church? Anybody ever said that when you're sick? No, no one's ever said that. Now, ladies, notice that James says we're to call the elders of the church. I find this very refreshing because as a pastor's wife, um, I've had people say, you know, you didn't come and visit me when I'm sick. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me, you know. And so the person who is sick has to take the initiative. They're the ones that call the elders of the church. Now, you might say, well, what is an elder? Well, an elder is a man who is older. He's an officer of the church. And by the way, he's qualified to be an elder. Uh, You look at the qualifications in Timothy and Titus. He's qualified. He has all those characteristics. Uh, An elder is also supposed to be very actively involved in intercessory prayer, according to Acts 6.4. And so that is what James says you do. If anyone you is sick, you call for the elders. And notice what the elders do. They pray over him. They anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. You might say, well, why does James encourage this? Well, have you ever been so sick that um, you couldn't get out of bed? Ever been that ill? I was thinking about Ross, you know. The last few weeks, he, since he got hit by the, hit on a scooter, and he's been in the hospital flat on his back. I mean, that's what I call very seriously ill. Now, Ross is laying there, and he's, you know, on morphine, and he's doped. And do you think Ross can pray for himself? Not very much. And so the elders come, and they pray. Because, ladies, sometimes when you're flat on your back and you're sick, quite frankly, it's hard to pray for yourself, Right? And so James says, call for the elders. Call for those who are spiritually mature to pray for you. And notice while they're praying for this one, they anoint him or her with oil. You might say, well, what is this? What is going on here? Well, olive oil was the most frequent type of oil that was used. It was used in biblical times. It had a lot of medicinal purposes. It had a lot of benefits. And actually, the Greek word here doesn't mean that the elders go around with a little bottle of olive oil and, you know, they come over to, you know, you're feeble and you're sick. And so they, you know, put a little thing on your head and they pray over you. The Greek word actually is translated to rub. It's an anointing. They rub the person. It's like, you know, a good massage. In fact, it's actually the same Greek word that's talked about Mary Magdalene. Remember when she went to the tomb and and she, they brought spices, and it says they anointed the body of Jesus. They rubbed the body of Jesus with an ointment. It's also the same Greek word used to describe the anointing of the feet of Jesus by the woman, you remember, who was uh, at the Pharisee's house, and it says she kissed, her, kissed his feet, and she used her hair to, remember, anoint Jesus' feet. In fact, the verb means to actually to stimulate or to encourage through application of oil. And that's what they would do in biblical times. In fact, today in the Middle East, they still do that. 
ladies, they've proven that actually massages are actually good. I know some of you probably think that sounds really gross, but uh, my husband who's diabetic, it's very helpful when he can have actually a physical rub down. It actually has healing uh, benefits from it. In fact, it's also the same Greek word that's talked about in uh, Luke chapter 10. Remember the Luke, uh, the Good Samaritan? Remember the story of the, Luke, the Good Samaritan? Remember the guy that was walking along the street and he fell among thieves and they left him, ha- you know, half dead and a Levite comes by and ignores him and priests come by and ignores him. But what? The Good Samaritan comes by and what does it say? The Bible says he does pours oil into his wounds. He doesn't take a bottle and say, here, you know, let's just pour oil into this wound. He actually used the oil as a medicinal purpose. He rubbed the oil into this one who was half dead into his wounds. Now, ladies, you might say, well, how does this practically carry out? I mean, in the 21st century, you know, Susan, when I'm sick, I don't call for Doug and say, you know, come on over and give me a massage. I mean, quite frankly, I don't want your husband, you know, doing that. Well, I don't either, but (laughs) can you delete that? No. What James is saying is this. We should exhaust all medical resources, including prayer, when we are sick. You know, it might mean you need a good antibiotic. Maybe you need an operation. Or maybe you need a good rub down with oil. Maybe that's what you actually need. But you definitely need prayer. And notice, while the elders are doing this, they do it in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means the elders totally trust and depend on Christ and his authority and in his will. You know, a lot of times we we pray and we say, in Jesus' name, amen. What are we saying? You know what we're saying when we say that? And you know what James means when he says the elders pray in the name of the Lord? Ladies, it's praying according to the sovereign will of God and his purpose in the life of this individual. And so as the elders are anointing this person with oil and praying in the name of the Lord, they're not necessarily using the phrase in the name of the Lord, but they're praying with the purpose in mind for God's sovereign will to be done in the life of the person who is sick. So, What are some reasons we should pray? Well, suffering, joy, and illness. So, what is the result of prayer? Well, notice what James says in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, ladies, we cannot take this verse to mean that every prayer that we pray For those who are sick, God will answer and will heal the individual because you cannot disregard the phrase in the name of the Lord. God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign will. Also, notice James says here, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And you might say, well, what is the prayer of faith? Well, I had someone tell me about 10 years ago, that I didn't have the prayer of faith because one of my friends got cancer and she died. And they told me, they said, Susan, if you had only had enough faith, if you had only had that prayer of faith, then your friend wouldn't have died. I just didn't. She said, you know, you've got the power within you. You just didn't have enough faith. And that's why your friend died of cancer. Is that what 
James means here the prayer of the faith will save the sick. What does this mean, the prayer of faith? Ladies, the prayer of faith is a prayer offered in faith when we seek the mind of God and pray again according to his will. We don't know the mind of God. We haven't been his counselor. We don't know what big picture he has in mind. Ladies, we pray and we pray in faith. And James says the prayer of the faith will save the sick. In other words, restore this person to physical health if God wills it. And then he says, notice, the Lord will raise him up. Goes all back to the Lord again, doesn't it? As we pray in the name of the Lord, if it is his sovereign will and for his glory, and we pray in faith, then James says it is the Lord who accomplishes the raising him up. It is the Lord who will enable him to stand on his feet. I think about Ross, you know, one minute we're getting a report that doesn't look so good and he's going to be in another week and he's still doing this and still having this problem. And the next thing I called Doug and he said, he's, he's gone home. And I said, what? I thought he was, you know, yesterday it was gloom and doom. And he said, well, God just answered prayer. (laughs) God answered prayer. The Lord enables the one to stand on their feet. Now, ladies, what should we conclude when our prayers have been offered? We know someone who's really sick. Prayers have been offered, and we're praying in the name of the Lord. We're praying in faith. We've exhausted every medical resource that we can think of. What if we do all that and the person dies? When we pray for healing and God chooses not to heal, is it God's fault? Or is it because we lacked faith? We don't have enough faith to believe. Did we forget to use that magical term in Jesus' name? Ladies, we must remember God does answer prayer. And I've seen him do it many times. He does restore the sick to health. I've seen him do miraculous things. People that should be dead today are not because I believe God has raised them up. Sometimes he does it by prayer alone, sometimes with the use of medicine and surgery, sometimes by combining the two. But ladies, sometimes it is not his will to restore the afflicted. And we have to trust in God's sovereign will. His grace is sufficient. However, in this passage... More than likely, the person here who is afflicted that James is writing about, he's talking about a specific person, is sick because of a result of sin. Because notice what he says. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, he's not saying for sure, but he said, if this man has committed sin, it will be forgiven. Ladies, may I bring out Before we go on, physical illness can be a result from sin. In fact, we see it today, right? Sexually transmitted diseases, those are a result of sin. Alcoholism, drug abuse, result of sin. Also, the Bible teaches that God may bring sickness as discipline for sin. You know, 1 Corinthians, what does it say? Many are coming to the Lord's table unworthy. And Paul says, for this reason, many are sick. And many fall asleep, and he's not talking about falling asleep on the back row of the church. He's talking about death. Because many of you are coming to the Lord's table with sin in your life, many of you are sick, and many even die. 
Ladies, whenever you fall ill, we should examine ourselves before the Lord to determine if it's due to personal sin. In fact, I'll never forget in the first church that Doug pastored in Pryor, Oklahoma, one of the elders in our church was also our doctor. And I can remember every time I'd go see Dr. Nunley, you know, the first thing he asked me wasn't, Susan, stick out your tongue. Let me see, you know, what's going on. You know, the first thing that Dr. Nunley asked me, he would say, Susan, how's your walk with the Lord? And I was like, well, that's a weird question to ask. But you know what? He was a very wise doctor because he knew sometimes sickness and illness can be very closely related. Now, not every time that you're sick, it's due to sin. Many times it is. Sometimes it's not. We live in a fallen world, right? And so we're going to get sick. I mean, every time Debbie and I get on the plane to go somewhere and I, you know, someone next to me is sneezing or wiping their nose, I'm like, oh, please, I don't want to get sick, you know, because we live in a fallen world and people are sick and people ride on airplanes and they have the flu and they're coughing and, you know, and sometimes you just get sick. And sometimes we're sick because God wants to be glorified in our sickness. Remember the man in John 9 who was born blind and they looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, who sinned? I mean, somebody had to sin, right? This man or his parents? Which one of them? What did Jesus say? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but so that the works of God could be glorified. And so sometimes we're sick so that God can be glorified. I think about the recent thing with Ross. We don't know why that all happened, right? But we know God has been glorified as he has shared the gospel in the hospital. And who knows what else will happen as a result of that? God is glorified. James says, well, if this man here, if he's laying in this bed and it's because of sin, he says, if he has committed those sins, they will be forgiven him. They'll be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, forgiveness here pictures this, these sins as being sent away so that they are no longer held against us. In fact, forgiveness means to bid to go away, to send them away. In fact, the promise here implies that the one who is sick has confessed his sins to God and has determined to turn away from them. In fact, remember the account of the man? He was sick for 38 years. Gospel of John, 30. Ladies, how would you like to be sick? He had an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus heals him. He finds him later on in the temple. You know what he says to him? Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So evidently this man had been sick for 38 years because of sin. Ladies, I can't imagine anything worse than being sick for 38 years except to go to eternity without Christ. So before we go on, can I make three suggestions for you to consider the next time you're sick? First of all, And I was talking to Ruth about this today. We had an interesting discussion on this lesson. When you are sick, examine your heart to see if you're living in any known sin. That's the first thing I would do. Next time you're really sick, examine your heart. Is there any sin in your life? Confess it. Forsake it. If it's a really serious illness, the second thing I would encourage you to do Call for the elders of the church to come pray for you. I've done that two times in my life that I can recall where I was really, really sick and I called for the elders of the church to come pray for me. And then the last thing I would encourage you to do, go to the doctor. 
Don't tell my husband I said that. Go to the doctor. Get appropriate medical care. You know, when you think about it, we do it backwards, don't we? I mean, the last time you were sick, what did you think? I got to take a Tylenol. I got to take an ibuprofen. I got to go see the doctor. That's the first thing. Our children are sick. What's the first thing we think about doing? Get them to the doctor. And then after we get them, you know, to the doctor, then what do we do next? If that doesn't work, what's the next thing we do? Then we might call someone and have them pray. You know, we ask for prayer. We put them on, you know, the prayer chain of the church. And if that doesn't work, you know what the last thing we do is? We talk to God about it. Lord, is there some sin? I mean, is something going on? You're trying to get my attention? We do it all backwards. So I encourage you the next time, do it the right way. Well, because we're sinners and we commit sin, we need to confess our sins, not only to God, but also to one another. That's why James says, in correlation with the sickness, notice what he says in verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, pray for one another, that you will be healed. Now, ladies, the command to confess our sins to each other seems to be related to the one who is sick in bed. This one should confess his faults, his sins. And notice why, so that he might be healed. Now, may I say this confession of sin seems to be related to those that you have sinned against. You know, the Bible tells us that if we have sinned against a brother or sister, that we're not even to come to worship. Did you know that? It says in the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, if you come to the altar and yet you know that you have ought against your brother, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Don't even come worship me. Go out the door and make it right with your brother. Then come and offer your gift at the altar. And James says, you know, if you have sins, you confess them. You know what the word here, confess, means? It conveys the thought of an open, frank, full confession. It means to say the same thing. It means to say, you know what, Rita, I lied to you last Wednesday night. I, you know, I told you such and such, and you know it wasn't true. And it was a full, flat-out lie. Will you forgive me? No, I didn't lie to you last week, but not I know of. It's saying the same thing, like, you know, I, Rita, you know, I just kind of told you a little fib the other night. But it's no big deal. That's not an open, frank, full confession. It's recognizing that I've sinned against Rita, and I've sinned against God. And so I confess my sins to her fully and completely. And by the way, we confess them to God too. Now, you confess your sins to those you've sinned against. Like, for example, if tonight I say something that's inappropriate or I say something that is sinful, um, you know, next week I'm going to have to come back and ask forgiveness from all of you. And I've had to do that one time in my teaching Many, many years ago, when I was teaching First Peter in my home, and uh, I did. I had to come back the next week and ask for forgiveness for all, from all the ladies. And that was very humbling. So your confession is related to those that you have sinned against. Ladies, let me caution you. If that is difficult for you to confess your sins to those that you have sinned against, um, that's pretty serious because John says that if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say, I have no sin, or, you know, it was her fault I sinned, he says we make him a liar, and his word isn't even in us. So I hope that you are in the habit of doing that when you sin against others. 
One more thing before we go on. I would encourage you in this, if you have sinned against someone in a sexual way, uh, I would encourage you to be careful on how much information you give when you are confessing your sin because Paul says it's a shame to speak about those things which are done by them in secret, and so you want to be careful about um, how much you divulge in that. Well, not only to confess our trespasses to one another, but notice what James says. We're to pray for one another. We're to pray for one another. You know, the prayer here should be offered for one another for forgiveness. You know, yeah, you can you can confess to someone, but then you say, you know what, will you pray for me? Would you pray for me? And James says, as you do that together, notice what he says, the sick is restored to physical and spiritual health. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another so that you will be healed. Ladies, if you only confess without prayer, it will prove to be very harmful. But when you secure faithful prayer support from those that you have sinned against, it can be of great value and further victory and spiritual maturity. In fact, I thank God for the people in my life that know my real weaknesses. And I have several women that hold me accountable. They know my struggles. And it's great because I know they're going to pray for me and they're going to hold me accountable. And they're going to ask me how I'm doing on that. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another so that you will be healed. Ladies, there's not one person in this room this evening that is, that is above accountability. We all need it. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Life Together, says this about confession. I want to read this to you. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to our pride. To stand there before a brother or as a sinner is a disgrace that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. And ladies, I would encourage you, if you don't have someone that you really are free with and that you can really talk to, you need to find someone that you confess your faults to one another and secure prayer. Notice what James says in verse 16. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why does he say that? Ladies, because the prayer of a righteous man is very powerful. That's what he's saying. It has great effect. In fact, the Greek word here, effective, means energetic. It has power. It's strong. It's a prayer that's not lifeless. It's not cold. It's not indifferent. But it's earnest. And notice the prayer must be offered by someone who is righteous. Someone who is living in a right relationship with God. Ladies, if you pray earnestly and if you are righteous this evening, I have good news for you. James tells us your prayers avail much. They are strong. In fact, another man says prayer is the arm that moves the world. Do your prayers move the world? Do they avail much? You might say, no, my prayers don't avail much. My prayers are ineffective. 
You know, if that's the case this evening, there might be some underlying reasons. If God isn't answering your prayers, there might be some underlying reasons. We don't have time to get into those right now. But just basically some of those, you might not know the one to whom you're praying, right? I think sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. If God doesn't answer your, hasn't answered your prayers throughout your whole Christian life, ladies, I would go back and make sure you're related to him. John says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you desire and it will be done to you. So maybe you don't know the one to whom you're praying. Or maybe you have sin in your life. You know, the psalmist says, if you regard iniquity in your heart, God won't hear you. He's not going to hear your prayers. Maybe God's not you're answering your prayers because you're not praying according to his will. You know, whatever we ask according to his will, he hears us. Or maybe it's like James has already said, you know, you don't get your prayers answered because you're asking what? To consume it on your own selfishness or your pleasure. Or maybe God's not answering your prayer because it's not his time. You know, we want, we want it right now. We want God to answer our prayer right now. Or maybe God's answered your prayer and he said no and you don't like no. You know, we don't like God to tell us no, do we? Well, what are the results of prayer? Notice what James says. It saves the sick, it heals, and it avails much. And then he moves on to give us a representation of prayer, and that is Elijah in verses 17 and 18. Notice what he says. Elijah is a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three and a half years. Now, ladies, Elijah is the fourth and final Old Testament example that James uses in this epistle. Can anybody remember the other three? We just had one a few weeks ago. Job, what are the other two in chapter two? What? Nope, there's two. One's a woman, one's a man, one's a patriarch. Rahab and Abraham. Right, good job. You're awake. He's the fourth Old Testament example that James uses in his epistle. Now, Elijah's name appears 30 times in the New Testament. You might say, well, why does he use Elijah? Well, the same reason he used Abraham and Job to the Jew. Elijah was one of the most grandest characters that ever existed. In fact, listen to these facts about Elijah. He fought a life and death battle with idolatrous Ahab and Jezebel. He killed the prophets of Baal. He raised the dead. He feasted in the wilderness at the hands of angels. He foretold famine and the coming of rain, and he vanished from the earth in a chariot of fire. So, I mean, hey, that sounds pretty cool, right? So, you know, they looked at him as, wow, Elijah. Plus, remember, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of the prophets on the Mount of Transfiguration. He foretold the coming of Messiah. And James says this righteous man is subject to like passions as we are. What does that mean? He has a nature just like you and I do. Elijah had weaknesses just like you and I do. He had infirmities just like you and I do. And James says he prayed and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. First of all, he prayed it wouldn't rain. And then he prayed that it would rain. You might say, well, what is he talking about? Well, hopefully you did your homework. And I'm not going to go into that too much. But remember in 1 Kings 17 and 18, remember wicked King Ahab and Jezebel, the queen, you know, they led Israel away into false worship of Baal. And so what did God do? He punished the nation. He withheld rain from them for what? Three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, the nation still did not repent. Kind of sounds like our nation, doesn't it? 
And so next we see the dramatic account on Mount Carmel, which I think I love to read that story. And Elijah, remember, he prepares the evening sacrifice and he prays and fire comes down from heaven. And what does it do? It just, you know, sucks up all the water, proving that Jehovah is the true God. But the nation still needed rain. No rain. Hadn't rained three and a half years. So what did Elijah do? He goes to the top of the mountain. He falls down before God and he prays seven times. Seven times he looks for a rain cloud. Elijah was a man of prayer, and he was persistent. He did not give up. Do you? Do you look intently for how God is working in your life by answering prayer? Do you recognize the ways God is answering prayer in your life in the same way Elijah did? He kept on looking, kept on praying, and it was the seventh time finally rain came. Ladies, Elijah believed not only in prayer, but he believed in persistent, earnest prayer. In fact, literally here, you know what James is saying? He prayed in his prayer. He prayed in his prayer. You know, I've heard a lot of people pray, and some people don't pray in their prayers. I mean, they pray lazy prayers, cold prayers, but not Elijah. James says he prayed in his prayers. Lady, the point... The point is clear. God answers prayer when righteous men and women pray. God can and he will accomplish his will through his faithful and obedient children. Since Elijah was a man like us, we should not be discouraged as we travel through life. God will answer our prayers as we pray earnestly and live a righteous life. So why should we pray? Well, we should pray when we're sick. We should pray when we're happy. We should pray when we're going through suffering. What is the result? Well, the prayer of faith, what? Saves the sick, raise them up. What's the representation of prayer? Elijah, great man of God. So ladies, how is your physical and spiritual well-being this evening? Are you sick? Don't get around me if you are, but... Are you sick? Could it be because of sin in your life? What have you done about it? What will you do about it? How is your prayer life? Do you pray in your prayers earnestly, fervently, or are your prayers cold and listless, just one minute popcorn calls to heaven? Do your prayers accomplish much? And do you thank God when the answers come? Is there someone in your life to whom you are accountable? Someone who knows your real struggles and is committed to pray for you? Someone you can confess your faults to? Ladies, our prayer life, I think as James almost ends his epistle, our prayer life again is another test that determines whether our faith is genuine. If you are not a woman of prayer or if you do not feel a need to communicate with your Heavenly Father, then I would challenge you. Something's wrong. Something is amiss if you have no desire to pray. And I trust that God will help us to be women of prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for um, this admonition in James this evening, Lord, for us to be like Elijah who was a righteous man, 
Lord, he um, had many challenges before him as the nation was turning away from Jehovah God. And Lord, you sent judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their refusal to heed the warnings. And yet Elijah did not give up. He kept praying. Even after you poured out your wrath upon the nation, Lord, he realized that the nation still had need for rain and he prayed earnestly. And I pray, Lord, that in our situation in our world today, that we would not lose heart, that we would pray, that we would pray for our nation to repent and that we would be women who pray earnestly and effectively. And Lord, I also would ask for us that we would be women who pray when we're happy. I pray that we would be women who would pray when we're afflicted, when we're suffering, when we're sick, when our children get sick, our grandchildren get sick, our husbands get sick, Lord. And instead of calling the doctor or going to the drugstore to get the things we need, I pray that we'd fall on our knees and pray. And Lord, that we would examine ourselves to see if there's some reason, perhaps, that you're allowing these things to come into our life. Lord, that we would not be so smug to think that you still do not afflict your children. Your word says that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And so, Father, I pray that we would be not negligent in this. If we are going through some difficulty, that we would fall on our face before you and ask, Lord, is there any sin in us? Is there something I need to change? And I pray that we would not be haphazard about sin in our lives, Lord. Pray that we would be serious, that we would be open, that we would be um, confessing not only to you, but to those that we've sinned against. And that we would be open and honest about that, Lord, not trying to make light of our sin. And Father, I thank you for um, the time that we have to follow with refreshment. And then as we discuss the lesson, I pray that it would be used to strengthen us even more in understanding of this passage. I know there's a lot packed in these verses. And Lord, I thank you for um, the one who will facilitate, and I pray your blessing on her as she uh, guides our discussion. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.